Let me read to you from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 17 down to verse 20. We looked at the eight Beatitudes that mark the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 and the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most concentrated record we have of Jesus' public ministry given in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in those Beatitudes, we saw a portrayal of what a Christian is intended to be. The question then, of course, is how is this life to be lived? And I want to look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and see the very practical outworking of the life that has been reconciled to God and brought back into relationship with him. And I'm going to read verse 17 down to verse 20 of chapter 5. And then I want to introduce this whole Sermon on the Mount to you, really, and pick out what I believe is the key theme of it. Verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now keep your Bible open. I'm going to refer to later verses in a moment. I think it's probably fair to say that a general view by people at large of the Sermon on the Mount is that it is Jesus' contribution to ethical teaching on a par with everyone from Moses through to someone like Mahatma Gandhi. Jesus takes the law of Moses, would be the understanding as the basis of his teaching, but then updates it in some areas, makes a few amendments. You have heard it said, and then he cites the law of Moses, but I say unto you, and then he gives an amendment to it, or some addition to it. But that would be a very superficial understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus does is not amend Moses in any way at all. In fact, in verse 18, he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Speaking there the law of Moses, he says it is as eternal as God is eternal. Heaven and earth will pass away. My word will not pass away. And we'll see why the law of God is as eternal as God himself is. But rather, what Jesus talks about in this whole Sermon on the Mount is that whereas the law can address the externals of our behavior, it does not address the internal heart of human beings. And that is not the outward 
display that is the most important thing because that can be put on, that can be phony, as we're going to see in a few moments. But it's the outward display that derives from something taking place in the deep recess of the human soul. Now this teaching, of course, is extremely relevant to us in our day because probably, certainly in the Western world, there has probably never been so much confusion about what is right or wrong, about ethics and morality as there is today. I suggest to you that the problem we face today is not so much one of immorality as it is of amorality. Let me explain. Morality is a recognized code of behavior. Immorality is a violation of that recognized code of behavior. It is deliberately breaking the rules. Amorality is to not even know that there is a code of behavior. And today it seems to me that everything is determined by expediency, by what is in my best interest, sometimes by the merits of the situation that I'm in. And this has been a huge change in the last probably 60 years. Some of you have lived through that period of time. And there was one, say, recognized in the Western world morality that we would attribute to the Judeo-Christian teaching of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the law of Moses, the teaching of Jesus. And then a period of immorality was a deliberate breaking and putting away and a smashing of these laws. But now we live in a day of amorality. For many folks, I talked to somebody just the other day who said to me in effect about a certain situation that is wrong and, and this person now knows it to be wrong because this person has become a Christian and simply said, I had absolutely no idea that this was wrong. I just assumed it was okay. You see, we don't talk about people doing things that are wrong today. We talk about them making poor choices or, or some similar kind of language. And we don't say they're wrong. We don't know what the standard is against which to measure our behavior, by and large. And so what Jesus has to teach us here is especially important in a day when the assumptions, the presuppositions that maybe people have often held are not held anymore as to how do we live and behave. Now, of course, ethics and morality is normally governed by laws of some kind. I mean, governments govern by law. They don't want you to go faster than a certain speed on the freeway. They stick up a sign with that number on. If you go faster and you get caught, you get fined. Their laws are governed how we behave. Organizations are governed usually by a constitution which has laws and rules and ways of operating, and you work within those. And in some senses, it's relatively easy to legislate how we should behave in a given situation and relatively easy to measure whether we are performing rightly or wrongly. But here, Jesus actually talks about something different to that. Jesus, in the Son of Man, goes beyond laws to the life itself that you and I live. 
He goes beyond conduct to the character that lies behind that conduct. He goes beyond rules to the word that Jesus uses in the passage I've read you now, to beyond rules to righteousness, which is something in the deep inner heart and soul of a person. He goes beyond the externals of our behavior to the internals of what kind of person we are. It penetrates deep into the human heart. And I suggest we could divide the Sermon on the Mount, if you like, into two parts. The first part is the briefer part, chapter 5 up to verse 16, where we have the Beatitudes, and then Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, not you have the salt, you have the light, you are the salt of the light. This is what I would call the character of a Christian, his teaching about the character of a Christian, what we are intended to be. But then from chapter 5, verse 17, where we began to read, right at the end of chapter 7, I suggest he talks about the conduct of a Christian, what we are intended to do. And in particular, as we read just now, the law of God is the basis of this. But it is vital that we understand the relationship between these two aspects. Because teaching on character, what we're intended to be, comes before the teaching on conduct, what we're intended to do. For this reason. We never evolve from right conduct to right character. By that I mean, we don't become the right person by doing the right things. Rather, it's the reverse. We evolve from character to conduct. By becoming the right person, we begin to do the right things. That's why Jesus Christ is Savior before he is teacher. He has to deal with what we are before dealing with what we do. There has to be inner transformation before there can be outer change in behavior. He changes what we are and then as a result changes what we do. That's why, by the way, you don't have to smarten yourself up to become a Christian. You come just as you are. Because what he does, if you allow Christ into the innermost part of your heart, is begin to change what you are. He creates what Jesus called earlier in Matthew 5, a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. And your behavior, what you do, follows the transformation of what you are. That's why Paul wrote, God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. That when God works in us, he implants new desires, new will, new direction, new acting, he says here, according to his good purpose. And of course, many of you know exactly what this is like because the change has taken place in your life. You see, if you go to a physician because you've got maybe a rash on your face, he is not going to be primarily concerned with the rash. He'll look at it in order to help him to make a diagnosis and identify the virus or the source of that rash, if his concern was just with the rash, of course, he might give you, or she might give you, uh, a makeup kit, you know, with which to paint your face so nobody else has to look at your rash. But that isn't going to solve the problem. But you know, sometimes that's how we try to deal with our behavior. 
and we paint on something that looks a little better. But we never actually diagnose the virus that is causing the problem and allow the Spirit of God to get into the deep inner recess of our own hearts and lives. And the Sermon on the Mount talks about this. This is the major theme of the Sermon on the Mount, as I hope I'm able to show you. In fact, for the next few minutes, let me focus from verse 20 of chapter 5. When Jesus said there, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now I suggest to you that when they heard Jesus say that, the people listening from their hair probably stood on end, and I'll tell you why. The Pharisees and the scribes, called in my version the teachers of the law, otherwise known as the scribes, I'll call them the scribes, it's easier. The Pharisees and the scribes were the pace setters in righteousness. The name Pharisee means separatist, because they separated themselves from everything they considered to be defiling. They were the arch-conservatives of their day. They were very careful about the food that they ate according to the Jewish laws, about the company that they kept, about the clothes that they wore. They tithed their money diligently. And they were renowned for their moral strictness. That's the Pharisees. The scribes were the teachers of the law. And therefore it is reasonable to suppose if they were the teachers of the law, they at least also tried to keep it. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. What in the world was he talking about? Well, he is introducing here What I'm talking to you about, which is the inside-outside dichotomy. That is, where the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes was an external behavior, rather than an internal transformation by the Spirit of God. Let me show this to you in the following verses. In verse 21... Jesus said there, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder. Well, that, of course, came from the law of Moses. And that was the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. They didn't murder. There was nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's everything right with that. But then in verse 22, Jesus said, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Now, that was the righteousness of Jesus. What is the difference? The difference is this. One is the action, murder. The other is the attitude that lies behind that action, anger. One has to do with external things. The other has to do with internal change of heart. One has to do with what they did. The other has to do with what they are. One is about conduct, that was the rights of the scribes and the Pharisees, the other is about character. And Jesus says, the issue is not whether you actually put a knife into somebody's back or a bullet between their eyes. That in itself isn't the issue, because you mightn't do that simply because you're scared of getting caught. And you won't do a clean enough job to get away with it. That's the only reason you don't murder, 
But actually, it is your heart that is the problem. This is not amending Moses. This is drilling underneath Moses to the cause behind the effect. Let me read verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Now that was the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. They didn't commit adultery. But verse 28 says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That is the righteousness of Jesus. What is the difference? One has to do with actions. One has to do with attitudes. One has to do with the externals, do not commit adultery. One has to do with the internals, your own attitude of heart. One has to do with what they do. The other has to do with what they are. One is about conduct. One is about character. You see, you might not commit adultery simply because, you, you, you know, she won't cooperate. <laughs> or you won't get away with it. Or you actually haven't got the courage to proposition her. And yet in your heart, you're filled with lust. This is not revising Moses. This is drilling through Moses down to the cause. Let me read you verse 31. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now, this was the rights of the scribes and the Pharisees. If you're going to divorce your wife, do it legally and tidily. Give her a certificate. But Jesus said, but I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced person commits adultery. Now, this was the righteousness of Jesus. Now, we're going to talk about this issue because we're going to talk about all these issues a little later. And uh, I won't fill you in on the whole divorce culture of this day. But they were concerned with the externals. Do it properly. Jesus is concerned with the internals of your relationship with your wife because a woman could not divorce her husband. So this is a husband's prerogative. Your relationship with your wife, and unless she has already broken the marriage vow by her own unfaithfulness, we'll talk about that clause later, but unless it's already been broken that way, do not do it at all. Because marriage is a commitment. You've made a promise. He's not revising Moses. He's going underneath it and saying, it's not just about divorcing her legally. It's about your loyalty to her because you can't promise and you committed yourself. It's about the heart. And actually, the next one is a logical development of that, because in verse 33, he says, Again, you've heard it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. That is, the rights of the Pharisees and the scribes was, If you've sworn, you've made an oath, you better keep your word, because you've sworn to do that. But in verse 34, Jesus said, Do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, etc. Then in verse 37, simply let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. That was the righteousness of Jesus. In other words, you don't keep your word because you promised on oath, and so you're now legally bound to keep it. You keep your word because your yes means yes, your no means no. You are a person whose inside and outside meshes together, And you don't violate your word. 
You see, what the Pharisees were doing was providing a makeup kit to deal with the rash. Externally, do the right thing, look the right thing. Jesus is going behind that and beyond that to the virus of the heart, the virus of sin, which has corrupted the human heart. That Christian living is not just living by the rules, it is living by a new heart or out of a new heart that God puts within us. Let me read you from Ezekiel 36 and verse 27, and this is... Uh, God speaking to Ezekiel about the new covenant he's going to make. And he says, I'll put my spirit in you, which is what would take place on the day of Pentecost, and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I'm going to put my spirit in you, and this is the result. The spirit in you will move you to what? Follow my decrees and keep my laws. The laws you see are right. The law of God is good, but its fulfillment is not simply through some external having to keep it, it's far more liberating and exciting than that. It's saying, I put my spirit in you, and the spirit of God in you has an appetite for holiness and righteousness, and I will move you to follow my decrees and keep my laws. And this, of course, is what the gospel is. The gospel goes to the deepest recess of the human soul and changes what we are. Then as a result, what we do changes. But it becomes almost a natural thing. Now, I don't pretend there's no struggle and battle, because of course there is, and I'll mention that in a moment too. But it's a new affection in the heart, new desires in the heart, new appetites in the heart. This inside-outside tension continues in chapter 6. Where in verse 1, Jesus said, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. And then he gives some examples in verse 2. When you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's your giving is a secret. So he says there are certain kinds of people, when they give, they get out their trumpet and they stand on the street corners and they see a few people coming along and put out their trumpet. And then they pull out when people say, what's that noise over there? Oh yeah, they look up in your direction, pull out your money, wave it around so everybody sees and drop it into the offering. And you do it to be seen by men. You have no reward from your father in heaven. He's not playing that game. It's the same thing, you see. The giving is outward. It's external. Whereas what God is concerned about is inward. It's internal. He says in verse 5 about praying. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Now he says, here are these people who love to pray, standing on the street corners or in the synagogues, and this is to be seen by men. So they're not praying to God at all. They're just trying to create some impression of being very spiritual people, and it's just a public display. And he says, don't do that. Because it's not about the externals. Go into the room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. 
And if your Christian experience is purely about the externals, you'll discover this. When you close the door, you'll have absolutely nothing to say, and you'll be bored within five minutes. Because it's just external facade. Then he talks about fasting. Verse 16, when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. They disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. So they adopt this sort of gaunt look and probably learn to mimic some stomach rumbles. And people say, are you all right? No, it's all, I'm all right, but I, I'm just a bit weak. I, I'm fasting. It's for the Lord. It's not for the Lord at all. It's because their disciplined Christian living, or the Pharisees, if I paraphrase it, or, or quick... Uh, uh, make the equivalent of Christian living. It's external. So he says, instead of you fast, let it not be obvious to anybody that you're doing it. Because it's not the externals, it's the internals. It's not what you do, it's what you are. It's not your actions, it's your attitude. It's not your conduct, it's your character. This is Jesus drilling under the law to what it's really all about. And you know, it's the easiest trap to fall into. None of us are exempt from it. I found my study and preparation this week very challenging personally. Because I know the pharisaical spirit is in me. In fact, when you look at the people of the day, you know, the groups of religious people in Jesus' day, and you try to identify the parallels in our day, you know, who are the Sadducees? The Sadducees, of course, were the ones who didn't believe in the supernatural, didn't believe in heaven, uh, they didn't believe in the authority of scripture, they, they are the liberals of their day, the equivalent of the liberals of our day, but when you ask the question, who are the Pharisees of our day, the question becomes extremely uncomfortable. Because the Pharisees were those who had a high authority of Scripture. They were biblically conservative. They knew right from wrong. They had a concern for holiness. And I would say that the features of Pharisaism are most prevalent in people like us the evangelical church, where we do have a high regard for Scripture. It is authoritative. We want to live by it. We do know right from wrong. We have a clear understanding that there are such things as right and wrong and absolute. But the temptation then is still a temptation now that our behavior patterns are more designed to impress other people than the true expression of our hearts. Now I know that we all battle with an old nature that fights against the spirit and to keep you from doing what you would. And every day we live with that battle and struggle. And every day I have to confess to God my failure and my sin. I know that. But the great temptation is to set up a facade. Not actually doing the things that are wrong, because we know the law says don't, so we don't murder and we don't commit adultery. And we do do the things that are right, because we know we're supposed to. And so we do the equivalent of giving, fasting, praying. 
but it's become detached from the inner heart and person, and we become dishonest, we become unreal, it's become a, a facade. That's why when Jesus described the Pharisees in Matthew 23, it's the most devastating chapter about the Pharisees and the scribes, he describes them in several ways. One way he says, you're like a whitewashed sepulcher. Outwardly, you look good. You've been painted nicely, but inwardly, you're full of dead men's bones. That's what you're like. He says, outwardly, you look good. Inwardly, you're rotten to the core. He says, you're like a cup that's been washed on the outside. But when you look inside, it's full of gunge. And you're only concerned that you wash the outside of the cup. He said in Matthew 23, verse 5, about the Pharisees and scribes, everything they do is done for men to see. In other words, they've, they've so distance themselves from the real thing that the whole thing has become an outward facade. And let me be very honest this morning, that is the easiest thing for you and me to do. Peter and I had lunch at a restaurant yesterday and the waitresses all had on the same t-shirt that said on the back of the t-shirts, Carol's coming, look busy. Well, I guess Carol owned the restaurant or something. And she probably gave them the t-shirts. But you know, there's something about that that strikes very close to the bone, doesn't it? I'm going to church this morning. Look, spiritual. I'm meeting with so-and-so today at work who's a Christian, so act properly. But if the next day I'm meeting somebody who's not a believer, not under the same constraints. You know, this has always been an issue, of course, because it's easy to recognize the outside, it's easy to see the outside, easy to measure the outside. You actually only know me from the outside. And so we tend to measure by that. It's much harder to know the inside, Not that this is about knowing people's inside. It's about you and me being real on the inside and knowing spiritual reality on the inside. Remember when Samuel had to go and appoint a king to replace Saul? He was told to go down to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, who had eight sons, and there were seven of them there. And when he walked in, Samuel was impressed. He knew exactly why he'd been sent to this house, looked at the oldest boy. Man, he looks very good. And God said, not him. The second one, not him. The third one, not him. And God had to intervene in the process of selecting the king to say to Samuel these words. Let me read them to you. First Samuel 16, verse 7. He said to Samuel, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But you know, when we lack the reality of the heart, we instead only measure by the outside. It happens in all kinds of ways. You know, it happens in the way we dress. I'm tired of emails about how people dress in this church. Absolutely tired of them. It is utter immaturity spiritually, and yet there are people who write to me who have been Christians for years. 
Somebody wrote, once and I didn't wear a tie. And they appealed to me to wear a tie for Jesus. <laughs> what nonsense. And yet, there are Christians for years who are living in that kind of spiritual babyhood. And Pharisaism. And we think it's important. Sonny wrote me a long letter. We must maintain our standards. I said, our standards are nothing to do with outward appearance. Sometimes the emphasis on the outward appearance makes us phonies. It makes us pretend things. It makes us act as everything's fine. And we don't have the freedom to be real. It's the last time I'll ever speak about that, but it was the last email I ever get as well. <laughs> I'm tired of it. Why? Because we haven't learned what Jesus is talking about here. That Phariseeism is to be seen by men. It's done to satisfy other people. And Jesus continues with this in chapter 7. For instance, this whole dichotomy of the outward, the inward. And I'm just introducing the theme this morning. We'll look at some of those details later. But in chapter 7 and verse 1, he says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. That is, you know... It's very easy to know what's wrong with other people. Verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You know, it's very easy to to spot, spot sawdust. To spot the speck of sawdust. Boy, that's a Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled pepper type of statement, isn't it? To, To spot the speck of sawdust in the brother's eye. Do you know, I get embarrassed sometimes. It's almost become an evangelical sport. Let's tell everybody what's wrong with the world out there. You know, that is not the ministry of Jesus. In fact, Jesus said in John 12, 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. Sometimes, you know, we, we take great delight in being able to identify and judge and, and condemn. If you want... If you want to produce some sound bites, the media will be interested in, just stand up and condemn people out there, and you'll get the sound bite. We actually don't have the role of being the policeman of society. That is not the role given to the church. What is the role given to the church? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 14, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Salt is only good when it's actually in the dinner, <laughs> being salt. Or in the context it was used mainly in Jesus' day, it's actually preserving. It's, it, it's preserving the meat. Salt is a preservative. Or it can be an antiseptic. You know, it's in the womb. It's painful, but it might work as an antiseptic. Salt is no good in the salt shaker. You can stick up salt shakers and say, you know, we are the salt, look at this, you know, and everybody else. You need salt, and you're all messed up. You don't have any salt. You're getting rotten because you don't have any salt. We're the salt. That's our ministry, is being there. You're the light of the world. And said, Jesus, you can hide your light under a bushel or under a bucket. That isn't any good to anybody. And that's why we are to live the Christian life in the public square. We're to live the Christian life in the business world. We're to live it in the field of education. We're to live it in society. Not to build our castles and put... Moats around them and pull up the drawbridge 
And then with our megaphone, shout across the moat about what's wrong with everybody out there. If it's wrong out there, it's probably because we're in here instead of out there being the salt and the light. So it's easy thing to judge. And Jesus said, don't... Well, he said, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clear to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So here's a huge implication we'll talk about later. The very fact you see the speck in your brother's eye is probably indicative that you have a plank in your own. Uh-oh. So while the people who shout loudest often have the biggest problems. We'll talk about that when we get to Matthew 7. What he is saying in this context is that this Phariseeism external is about the external not doing the wrong things, do doing the right things, the praying, the fasting externally, and then it's out there judging. Down in verse 21 of chapter 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Do you notice that? These are people who knew the language. They called him Lord, Lord. They were involved in ministry. They exercised spiritual gifts. They prophesied in his name. They drove out demons in his name. They even performed miracles. The outward show look good. The only problem is, he says, I never knew you. Do you know it can be lucrative being in Christian ministry? It can be a good job, a good career. I mean, the, the more you get into this kind of stuff, the bigger the show, the bigger the rewards. The miracles, the prophecies, the driving out demons. I mean, these are big things. But it's all a big act. I'm telling you what Jesus said. It's all a big act. I never knew you. This did not derive out of intimacy with me. I didn't know you. And then at the end of chapter 7, Jesus told a story of two men who built a house each. The houses would have looked equally good. They may have used the same materials, may have followed the same design. They looked equally good as you passed by when you'd seen these newly constructed houses. You'd say, those are good houses. But what you couldn't see, what was below the surface, was the foundation on which the house was built. That was not visible. One was built on rock. One was built on sand. And the externals looked fine until one day, said Jesus, there came a storm and the winds blew and the floods came as the rain beat down. And the house on the sand began to crumble and fell and great was the fall of it. And the house on the rock stood firm. It's the same issue he's taking through this whole seminar on the mount. The externals looked equally good. It was hard to discern standing back. Is one of those houses at fault? I don't know. Is one of those houses about to collapse? I don't know. So don't go around trying to judge because you don't know. Because we're not to do that anyway. But you can be sure when the pressure's on, some just crumble. There's no reality. It's just a facade. 
And what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is strip us of dependence on the externals. Now, of course, the externals become important as they grow out of the inner spiritual life. But he strips us of the externals and strips us down and down to have nothing left but God himself. That's why he says, you know, go into the room and close the door. Go to the secret place with God alone. And as I mentioned just now, if some of us did that, we may may well find there's nothing there. We don't have a secret place because there's no there's no relationship. It's all doing this and doing the right things and setting the alarm and to get here in time. And having done that, check it off for another week. But there isn't that place of spiritual life out of which everything else emanates. These other things you see are right. The praying, the fasting, the giving, these are right things. The not committing adultery, not murdering, the law, these are right things. Even when you take the plank out of your eye, then you can help your brother remove the speck. So there is a right way to be involved in other people's lives. First deal with yourself, then you can deal with them. It's not that the outward things are not right. The outward things are right. But when they become like a Hollywood set that's supposed to look right and look good, but behind it it's just propped up. It's not real. Then he strips that away to get right down to the heart. Until we're left with God alone. You know, sometimes we welcome Jesus, but only as a stepping stone to something else. And the something else is really what we're interested in. We see Jesus' stepping stone to being forgiven. That's what we're really interested in. Jesus the means to that. So we come to Christ to be forgiven. But forgiveness is actually what we're really interested in. That's the prize. Or Jesus Christ is a stepping stone to, to peace. Or the stepping stone to heaven, that's the prize. Or the stepping stone to miracles, that's the prize. And so if we don't get some of those things, we get very frustrated because it's not Christ who is the end in himself. He's simply the means to that end. I talked to a lady down here a couple of weeks ago who said to me, isn't God a miracle working God? I said, well, it depends what you mean by that. If you mean, is that how we are to define him? That that is his very nature, he is miracle working? The answer is no, because God is also a non-miracle working God. In fact, it seems to me that he is more often a non-miracle working God than he is a miracle working God. There are people right now dying because there's no miraculous intervention. Don't blame God for that. But in the midst of it, in the midst of it, It's God himself that we need to know and seek for. He's not a stepping stone to anything. He is himself the end purpose of the Christian life, that we might know him, know his presence, know his character from the inside, working itself out. So you have what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. Not the fruit of the Christian. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit is producing. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and so on. 
Well, how does all this work? How does all this come to be? Well, I'll read you one verse, and it's in chapter 5, verse 17, and then we're going to work through these three chapters in the kind of issues and details. I've just given you the general principle, theme of the Sermon on the Mount. But in verse 17, he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, so don't get any idea that somehow that law is now history and past. No, I've not come to abolish it. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is what I've come to do. I've actually come, said Jesus, to make them work. So what the law says becomes real in your life. That is true. You do not murder, you do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not covet. You have no other gods before me. These things become true, but not because you're saying, I've got to try and keep these rules. I have come to fulfill it. That is his, he himself, his presence in us fulfills it. Which is what it says in verse 16. Let your light shine before men, the previous verse. Let your light shine before men, that they see your good works and do what? Pat you on the back? No. Make a video about your good works? No. Write a book about your good works? No. What do they do? They see your good works and they praise your Father who is in heaven. Why praise your Father if they're your good works? Because you recognize that the source of that goodness that we see in you is God. I have come to fulfill the law. That's why you see there's hope for every man, woman, boy, and girl. It doesn't matter what you're like. It doesn't matter what your weaknesses are. It doesn't matter what your history is like. It doesn't matter how messed up your life might be. It only matters if Jesus Christ is sufficient and able. Because he doesn't say, now I've come to give you a second chance. You better fulfill the law. No, this is what the gospel is all about. I will fulfill the law. So I've come to do. Not to change it. Not to give you a lower standard. No, no. But to actually take the law of God that was written on tablets of stone, external, and write them on your hearts, internal, and make them work. But don't wait, because some of you may not know that. Now, if I say you may not be a Christian, some of you may recognize that straight away. No, I'm not a Christian. But if I can be so bold, it may well be that some of you think you actually are. You may have been around the church for years. You may have been baptized, gone through every hoop. But you do not know Christ. You know about him. You know the language. You don't actually know him in the deep recess of your heart. And you know how you know. Because when you do close the door, there'll be nothing there. And as A.W. Tozer once said, and I presume in this statement he was making a wild guess. But I get the point he was making. Tozer said that probably 70% of people in evangelical churches are not yet actually born again. They've just been Christianized. But don't know the inner reality. And the Sermon on the Mount will be two things to us as we go through it. It'll be very uncomfortable. In the same way, the visiting your doctor is usually uncomfortable. But for very good reason. Because he will... Drill down below all the externals. Drill down below all the religious practices. Drill down below all the things that we think important. And deal with the inner heart. And there, 
is where the Holy Spirit of God is to come to live. And living there to flourish in you and flow out through you and me his own character, his own image, his fruit. Do you really know Christ? Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for every person listening to my voice. I thank you that they're here because they want to know you and to know you better than they do. I thank you for the drawing of the Holy Spirit that brings us into this environment. But as in the words of the psalmist, you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. And I pray, Lord Jesus, whatever our history may have been, that we'll forget about that for a moment and just ask that in our inner part, in our inmost being, we might know truth, we might know yourself, we might know your presence, we might know your working, that out of our hearts will flow a river of life and godliness. For those who know they don't know Christ, bring them to yourself. For those who don't know they don't know you, should there be any, but they think they do, and yet their hearts are empty, I pray that you'll graciously draw them to that point where nothing is as important as coming into genuine, deep peace with God and relationship with you. For those who do know you, I pray that the spirit in our hearts will bear witness that we're children of God, that we will know that you're present, that we'll be filled with that sense that you are at work in us to bring about your purposes, even though we know we stumble, we fail, we battle every day. Oh, Jesus, give us that assurance you are producing the fruit of righteousness. And we'll go on doing so. Make us good people. Make us godly people, we pray. That is true from the inner being through to the way we behave and live. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.